Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Persia. Hey, History of Persia fans. Before Persia, another civilization controlled the Middle East, the very first civilization, the inventors of writing itself. From the clay tablets of ancient Mesopotamia come the oldest stories. The history and myth of the first Mesopotamians is the subject of the Oldest Stories podcast online at oldeststories.net. If you like ancient history, come check out the Oldest Stories after you listen to this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, Episode 28, The Grand Tour, Part 3. You just heard from James of the Oldest Stories podcast. His show is an appropriate choice to accompany today's episode because we're actually moving through his part of the world, just about 1,500 years later. Now, the script I wrote out ahead of time says, quote, The third time's the charm, so today I'm wrapping up the Grand Tour episodes no matter how long it takes me. Now, technically, that's true. This is the third time I'm recording Grand Tour episodes, and I did finish no matter how long it took. It's just that it took so long that I actually split it into two episodes. So, if you just got to the feed today and you're confused by having 28 and 29, don't worry, you didn't miss a week. It's just that I released two episodes today. If you're surprised to see three things in your feed today... There's also the happy birthday announcement, because as of now, the podcast is officially more than one year old. Once again, thank you all so much for your support over the last year, and if you go listen to that announcement episode, you can go get some state-of-the-podcast updates, as well as some announcements about some other upcoming things. Just to keep us all on track, Darius I is very comfortably the great king, king of kings, king of Persia, king of Babylon, etc., with no rebels in sight and more territory at his beck and call than any king in any history up to that point. We've been working through the gargantuan Persian Empire province by province for the last two episodes, and when I left off, we had just entered the province of Assyria, traveling north out of Arabia. Once again, I'm following the maps of Ian Mladyov, which have been posted and linked on the website, historyofpersiapodcast.com. I changed my plan at the end of the last episode because Assyria is such a giant concept to deal with. It was neither the richest, nor the largest, nor the most populous of the Achaemenid provinces, but it is, without a doubt, the most complex with hindsight. At the end of that episode, I gave a brief overview of the provinces that had governed the region. Cyrus seized everything from the Tigris River to the Mediterranean Sea when he conquered Babylon. At first, he split it with the Euphrates River as the dividing line between Babylonia 
and the Trans-Euphrates province, which is sometimes called by its Akkadian name, Ebernari. However, before his death, Cyrus recombined the former Babylonian Empire as the province of Babylonia. After taking the throne, Darius split them once again as part of his tax reforms, which I'll talk about in a future episode. The new boundaries seem to have reset the territory to the borders for most of the duration of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Babylonia was reduced to southeastern Mesopotamia, and the newly formed Assyria, Athura in Old Persian, occupied most of the Old Empire's territory, but now as a province subservient to Persia. It may be that this split was also made to enforce a degree of separation between Assyria's resources and Babylon itself. After all, Darius had just defeated two hard-fought rebellions from Babylon in 522 and 520 BCE. However, that is just a theory, and a kind of weak one at that. As we'll see, Babylon also served as a royal capital and was tied ever closer to the great king. In the new system of great satrapies, the satrap of Babylon had seniority over the satrap of Assyria. On top of that, the two satrapies were so closely linked that the names are used almost interchangeably in some records, both Greek and Persian. Assyria controlled most of the actual land in the great satrapy, while Babylonia held most of the political power. Between the two, they were almost an empire within an empire, and that's how I'm going to approach this. I'm going to move through the minor sub-satrapies in Assyria and Babylonia in the same way that I've been moving through the main satrapies thus far. So if you're following straight from last week, I said we'd pick back up on the shores of the Dead Sea for no other reason than that was the most noteworthy geographical feature in the southeast part of Palestine. And just like that, we're into the weeds of historical geography and linguistics here. I'll talk about this in terms of how the Greeks thought about it, because Egyptian and Mesopotamian sources don't usually bother to give boundaries when using names like Palestine and Syria, but they definitely used those words, or at least their own variations of them. The word Palestine was the Greek translation of the Semitic word usually rendered Peleset or Peleseth in most of the languages actually spoken in that region. A few centuries later, it was retranslated into Greek directly from Hebrew scripture as Philistine. So in effect, Palestine and Philistine are two Greek translations of the same name at different times in history, but they are definitely connected. In the Greek mind, Syria could encompass everything south of the Taurus Mountains in southern Anatolia, down to the Sinai Peninsula and the Arabian Desert, terminating at some nebulous point in the desert in the east and the Mediterranean in the west. Palestine, according to Herodotus, was a district within Syria that included everything west of the Jordan River and south of Phoenicia. Speaking broadly, that makes it most of modern-day Israel, or at least Israel as defined by its own government. That's a can of worms that I'm not going to get into. But Palestine wasn't really a useful political or economic division of the Persian Empire. The coast was controlled by the old Philistine Pentapolis cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod. Though they had long since lost their cultural and political cohesiveness as a single Philistine culture, and had largely been absorbed into the milieu of local Canaanites. On the eastern side of the Jordan River, there were a variety of cultures with various origins in modern Jordan. Some, like the Moabites on the eastern side of the Dead Sea and the region of Gilead covering most of northwest Jordan and its border with Syria, are only known in detail through the Hebrew Bible. Even then, those stories are set centuries earlier, 
Their existence is confirmed by Assyrian and Egyptian references, but that's really all we have. But as we scan over the region, most of it shrouded in a lack of written history and unremarkable archaeology, a couple of regions do jump out. First and foremost, and most importantly with historical 2020 hindsight, is a tiny semi-autonomous kingdom called Yehud Medinata in Aramaic. It formed a sort of rectangle stretching from the southwest edge of the Dead Sea in one corner to somewhere just east of the modern Ben-Gurion airport in the far corner. And yes, that is actually the best landmark that I could work out for an international audience. Of course, when translated from Aramaic to conventional modern English, Yehud Medinata is the land of Judah, the tiny kingdom of the Jews restored to existence by Cyrus the Great, sort of. Roughly the same area had been a Babylonian province, but without its traditional monarchy or priesthood, it was barely recognizable. As the focus of Western Christian and Jewish archaeology, and a fairly well-documented history in the form of the Bible, Yehud is one of the best documented parts of this region, and it throws some light on the situation in the area when Darius came to power. Cyrus was immortalized in the biblical book of Isaiah as a messiah, a chosen one of the Jewish god who had liberated the faithful and allowed them to return home from Babylon. There's just one problem. Basically none of the faithful returned home from Babylon, even with Cyrus's official permission. It turns out that a generation of Jews, including basically all of their political and religious leaders, had carved out lives for themselves in Babylonia, and were very hesitant to uproot and move halfway across the known world. It may not even have been until Darius came to power that Zerubbabel, the first Persian official sent to lead in Yehud, arrived in Jerusalem with a few thousand exiles and their families. Even these seem to have been some of the more zealously religious members of the exile community. They'd probably have to be if they wanted to make that trek. They tried to reinstitute the cult of Yahweh as the sole official religion, now more accurately just Judaism as a recognizable religion, and faced extreme resistance from the locals, who were either outright worshippers of the Canaanite pantheon, or had mixed earlier Jewish practices with the local religions that had remained popular after the conquest. At least under Darius, royal funding was finally sent to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. At some point, I'll get to a full episode on Persian Yehud, because it's one of the most important periods in Jewish history, but it won't be until the reign of Darius's grandson Artaxerxes I that Yehud really starts to recover. In fact, recovery is probably the best way to describe the whole region of Palestine under the Persians. From 740 BCE to about 580, the whole region was repeatedly pummeled by the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. They came, they subjugated, local alliances revolted, and the cycle repeats. It was a constant stream of conquest and reconquest for 160 years. It's no wonder that the local kingdoms and city-states were reduced to shadows of their former selves. The Babylonians appear to have enacted some particularly brutal defeats and deportations as a stream of refugees poured into Egypt and even the Judean countryside was left relatively desolate to modern archaeology. Palestine, formerly called Canaan, had always been the stomping ground of greater empires, but these late Iron Age wars seem to have been particularly destructive. By all archaeological evidence, the region was sparsely populated and almost all of the urban centers had declined significantly. The same held true as you moved further north, crossing from Yehud into the territory of Samaria, the small sliver of land formerly known in the Bible as the Kingdom of Israel, once a sister kingdom to Judah 
it was now more of an estranged cousin, either practicing a version of the religion that was too affected by local beliefs or not influenced enough by exile for the new kingdom of Yehud's developing orthodoxy. The lone exception to this decline seems to be the territory known from the Bible as Ammon, basically parallel to Samaria across the Jordan River. Ammon, unlike all of its neighbors, prospered during the Babylonian and early Persian periods. It may be that once they were conquered, the Ammonites exploited the constant Assyrian and Babylonian beatings on their neighbors to buddy up with the new kings as willing tributaries and get preferential treatment. Continuing north from Samaria, we have to pass through the unremarkable highlands of Galilee, which is relatively sparsely populated and agricultural to this day. I'm sure it will continue to be a historical non-entity and produce no important people for the rest of its history. Obviously. Finally, we exit Palestine by heading northwest and enter into Phoenicia. Typically, this is just shorthanded as modern Lebanon, but Phoenicia actually reached south to the cities of Joppa and Akko in modern Israel, and north to Arwad in Syria. It wouldn't be inaccurate to compare Phoenicia with a Levantine Greece. Both were comprised of functionally independent city-states. Both thrived on extensive Mediterranean trade networks. Both had colonies spread out all over the Mediterranean from modern Spain and Morocco back to their homelands. Both sets of colonies tended to maintain some sort of connection with the city of their founders. And in both cases, the most powerful cities came to dominate some of their smaller neighbors. The big difference was that they were on opposite sides of a crest. Greece was still recovering from the so-called Dark Age after the Bronze Age collapse, and would not see imperial domination for another couple of centuries. Phoenicia had seen an impressive peak of their civilization in the centuries after the empires surrounding them fell into chaos. From about 1000 to 800 BCE, independent Phoenician city-states grew extraordinarily wealthy from both a near monopoly on seagoing trade and as a consequence of being the only people in the Near East who didn't have to completely rebuild their civilizations. In the Bronze Age, they had just been the wealthiest stretch of Canaanite cities caught between the Hittites and the Egyptians. With the development of distinct Iron Age Hebrew and Philistine territory in the south, scholarship identifies the continuation of Canaanite culture in the north as Phoenicia, which is what the Greeks called them. The Phoenician cities maintained a cultural continuity throughout this period, but thrived as politically independent cities. That lasted roughly as long as it took the Neo-Assyrian Empire to turn up on their doorstep. The coastal corridor occupied by the Phoenicians and Philistines was essential if the Assyrians wanted to threaten Egypt, and so they were subjugated. The cities on the Levantine coast became tribute-paying members of the Assyrian Empire by the mid-9th century BC. Of course, there were a few rebellions, but the biggest cities mostly stayed out of it and paid their dues. And when they did rebel, they were punished with brutal sackings and deportations. Only the island city of Tyr could ever expect preferential treatment after a rebellion, because it was just too hard to besiege and too dominant in trade. Even then, the Assyrians stripped it of all mainland territory in order to weaken the city. The whole Levant, including parts of Syria, most of Palestine, and Phoenicia, initially tried to resist Babylonian conquest of Assyrian territory in a bid to return to their previous independence. Obviously, that failed, with another round of brutal subjugation and deportations, including the first stage of the more famous Jewish deportations. Once again, Tyr is an anomaly, but for the opposite reasons this time. They faced a 13-year siege and blockade by the Babylonians before capitulating. 
Finally, when Cyrus the Great took over the Babylonian Empire, we hear very little from Phoenicia. Herodotus makes a reference to Harpagus, Cyrus's greatest general, conquering Phoenicia, but we have no details. It would seem that the Phoenicians entered Persian territory relatively peacefully. Under the Persians, Phoenicia was reorganized. The age of many independent cities was over. Instead, four small vassal kingdoms were set up under the control of the four biggest cities. Tyre ruled everything from its own island south to Joppa in modern Israel. Sidon controlled the area north of Tyre and was usually the favorite city of the Persian government. Byblos was in charge north of that, and Arwad controlled the northmost part of Phoenicia, the modern border region between Lebanon and Syria. Once those four kingdoms were established, the Persians were happy to leave the Phoenicians to their own devices so long as they paid their taxes and didn't start any wars. And the Phoenicians were more than happy to keep trading with their independent colonies in the west and becoming more than wealthy enough to pay tribute to the great king. They were actually more than happy to embrace Persian political power because it gave them unhindered access to trade and infrastructure reaching into Mesopotamia, enabling the Phoenician cities to become hubs of overland trade as well as maritime. As one of the two great maritime trading cultures in the eastern Mediterranean, they also benefited greatly by acting as willing contributors to the Persian Empire, in stark contrast to the repeated defiance from the Greeks, mostly the Ionians and Anatolia. Every time the Persians had to punish the Ionians in the years after Cyrus's conquest, it just removed another competitor from the Phoenicians. Most famously, the Phoenicians traded a purple dye secreted by the type of sea snail called a murex. Extracting the dye required thousands of snails and lots of manual labor at each step from diving into the sea to find them, to bottling the dye or coloring fabric. It was thus ludicrously expensive, and the color purple, which was often actually a dark red rather than violet, became a status symbol. The great kings, probably starting all the way back with the Egyptians or the Assyrians, demanded huge quantities of the dye or dyed fabric as tribute. That had the combined effect of limiting the amount available for export, enabling the king to make liberal use of the color purple at court, and building up a massive stockpile of purple fabric in imperial treasuries. All of that said, the Phoenicians didn't limit themselves to dyes and fabrics. They traded in everything. Artwork, precious metals, stones, cedar wood for construction, tin from as far off as Britain, glass, and a whole host of other goods passed through the great Phoenician ports every day. In exchange, they had to pay their tribute and furnish the Persian navy. For the whole history of the Achaemenid Empire, the Phoenicians will produce, crew, and captain almost all of the ships in the Persian fleet. It was mostly Phoenician ships that accompanied the Persians to Egypt and broke the siege of Memphis, and in the next few months we'll see mostly Phoenician ships carried the Persians to Greece, and in the more distant future, it will be Phoenician ships that Alexander of Macedon tries to cut off from the empire before heading inland. At least for now, the Persians were operating on a comfortable symbiosis with the Phoenicians. The Persians got ships, and the Phoenicians got new trade partners and everyone got rich. Continuing our tour, let's hop on one of those Phoenician ships and sail out into the Mediterranean. Because included in the province of Assyria is the large island of Cyprus, first conquered by Cambyses around 525. 
Cyprus is relatively well documented. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Especially when compared to the Eastern satrapies or somewhere like Thrace or Cappadocia. But it still remains something of an enigma. It doesn't help that we're at a funny point in the narrative to discuss Cyprus, since they're about to play a role in the next big narrative event after things kick off in Ionia. I should probably start by pointing out that Ian Mladyov puts it in Assyria, which is what most scholars do when they absolutely have to assign it to a province, but we actually have no idea. There's never reference to Cyprus as an independent land ruled by the Persians in any of Darius's inscriptions. Herodotus has no concept of the actual Persian provinces, but associates Cyprus with Phoenicia and Palestine in his list. Actual Persian references to it are scarce. The one tablet from Persepolis refers to Cypriots as workmen from Assyria, so maybe that's how they thought of it. More than likely, Cyprus was largely independent so long as the local kings paid their tribute and sided with the Persians in international politics. There was probably some kind of Persian garrison there, but there's no evidence of any particular Iranian occupation. It might be that it was actually a Phoenician garrison, which would enable the necessary naval support to dominate an island, and is more likely to go unnoticed by archaeologists because there had been a Phoenician presence on Cyprus for 400 years. Persian Cyprus, not unlike modern Cyprus, was culturally split. It was largely Greek, speaking their own variation of the Arcadian Greek dialect, However, there were also a few Phoenician cities and settlements too, and there had been several Tyrian invasions over the previous centuries depositing more Phoenicians on the island each time. The Persian invasion doubtless brought even more Phoenicians. Cypriot art, pottery, and monuments tend to appear Greek with Phoenician influence. Fortifications and general architecture appear to be Phoenician with Greek influence. Meanwhile, Persian influence is visible in palaces built during this time, suggesting that some kind of Persian official presence was there, or at least a familiarity with the satrapal courts on the mainland. 
gods from both cultures, as well as Egypt and Mesopotamia, figured prominently in the island's temples. The greatest deity on the island was a syncretic version of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, with Babylonian Ishtar and Phoenician Astarte. Despite this, later Greeks claimed that the island had been largely Greek. Modern scholarship tends to view this as more of a synthesis, but that wouldn't have meshed with Greek propaganda accusing the Persians and Phoenicians of corrupting the Cypriots. Whether independent, under Egyptian control as it had been when Cambyses arrived, or under Persian rule as it was when he left, Cyprus was comprised of a collection of separate kingdoms, mostly city-states or small kingdoms of a few cities centered on one major site. Often there were more than a dozen of these city-kingdoms, but following Cypriot involvement with the Ionian Revolt, we'll see that number drop to just ten Persian-sanctioned kingdoms, much like the four city-kingdoms of Phoenicia. In fact, Cyprus was similar to Phoenicia in many ways. Both were eventually comprised of a reduced number of Persian-sanctioned kingdoms and left to their own devices so long as they respected their commitments. In both cases, those commitments were primarily to pay tribute and provide ships to the navy. There's more to say about the current moment in Cypriot history, around 500 BC, but since it will be featured heavily in the narrative when I get back to it, I'll save that for then. In lieu of a story, I'll move on with the tour. Moving through Assyria, we return to the mainland, heading north to the southern edge of Anatolia and the mountainous kingdom of Cilicia, or Kilikia to use the Greek pronunciation. Located on the Anatolian side of that little corner of the Mediterranean that is now the eastern border between Turkey and Syria. The eastern side of the kingdom was all mountains, sparsely populated and nearly inaccessible. The east was a fertile plain, covered by the Kidnis, Saurus, and Pyramus rivers, that produced lots of grain for export. The Taurus Mountains wrapped around the northern edge of Cilicia and the provincial border with Cappadocia. These northern mountains were passable only through a mountain pass known as the Cilician Gate, which was a key invasion route into the rest of Anatolia for much of its history. Prior to, and during the Assyrian period, Cilicia had actually been host to a pair of Neo-Hittite kingdoms, one in the mountains and one in the plain. After Assyria fell, the mountain kingdom, called Hilaku, conquered its lowland neighbor and shifted its own capital to the wealthy lowland city of Tarsus. The new independent kingdom of Cilicia was ruled by a king whose title was Suenesis. If you follow the line all the way back to that earlier mountain kingdom, which submitted to the Assyrians willingly, they had never been conquered. They avoided Babylonian control, and when Cyrus the Great conquered Anatolia, there's actually a strong possibility that they submitted willingly. Cilicia was difficult to invade, as it was completely surrounded by mountains, but was also vulnerable if either of their main mountain passes was taken by an enemy. Evidently, the Cyanesis around 546 BC didn't like his odds against the Persian army. Tarsus remained the capital, and the Cyanesis remained a vassal to the King of Kings and Cilicia continued to produce grain and horses on the river valley, paying tribute to the Persians each year. To counter this independence and secure the food supply in Cilicia, there was a significant Persian occupation, which influenced the local region. A few cults fused Greek and Cilician elements with Persian ideas, and there was even a Persian fire sanctuary probably dedicated to the veneration of Ahura Mazda. If we continue our tour, we have to head east this time passing through the Syrian gates, the mountain pass that takes us from Cilicia to, well, Syria. This is different from Assyria, 
and may not have been a political division recognized by the Persians. It's unclear. However, the Greek definition of Syria, geographically, was different from the Persian province of Assyria, and Ian Mladyov splits them on his map, so it's probably worth acknowledging. Syria, for our purposes, is the northern part of the province west of the Euphrates, excluding Cilicia and extending south to some of the inland cities parallel to Phoenicia. This was the region that filled up with small Aramean kingdoms after the Bronze Age collapse, until they were conquered by the Assyrians and Babylonians, at which point they became a collection of Aramaic-speaking cities. The Persians basically inherited those cities and the region of Syria wholesale from the Babylonians with very little change. In the future, after the fall of the Achaemenids, Syria will grow continuously in importance for centuries, but at this point, it's kind of a backwater. We don't have a lot of writing, there aren't many major cities or trade routes or rebellions, and thus we don't know a whole lot about what's going on. Persian presence was probably minimal, and so their cultural influences were still mostly Phoenician and Babylonian, though some Persian nobles eventually held vast agricultural estates in the region. The major city of Syria was Damascus. Founded by Canaanites in the Bronze Age and taken over by Aramaeans in the turnover between the Bronze and Iron Ages, it was still mostly in the same place as today. Unfortunately, like a lot of places that have had continuous habitation for over 3,000 years, evidence for some of these early periods, like the Persians, is scarce. Patreon subscribers who listened to the recent bonus episode on Ugarit can note that the major temple of the city was dedicated to Hadad, with no direct association with Baal that we know of. Apparently, it was the primary Persian treasury where taxes and tribute were taken in the region, but that is only known from a few literary sources. But that means there were probably Persian records and artifacts in the city at some point. They were probably lost and buried somewhere in Damascus over the centuries, so maybe someday someone will find them if they haven't been inadvertently destroyed yet. Traveling out of northern Syria, we finally cross the Euphrates and enter Assyria itself, the former heartland of the great Mesopotamian Empire, long since reduced to pasture land and a few large towns. This probably included Syria in the Persian sense of geography, but for our modern purposes, I mostly mean most of Mesopotamia west of the Tigris, and north of modern Baghdad, where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are closest to one another. To understand Assyria under the Achaemenids, we need to hop back to episode 3, Babylonians and Medes, very briefly. From 616 to 609 BCE, the Medes and Babylonians waged a brutal war against the Assyrians, first to force the Assyrians off of their borders, then to conquer the empire for themselves. Over the course of those campaigns, many of the great cities in the Assyrian heartland, the region we're talking about right now, were completely destroyed. Cities like Nineveh, Ashur, and Kalhu were gone. Nineveh was completely lost to the sands of time, and its ruins were slowly consumed by the landscape. When modern archaeologists first arrived and uncovered the city, they even found unburied skeletons and weapons from that battle. Despite that, the region was able to resurge over the following century. Of the cities that were completely destroyed, only Asher was able to return to full prominence, and even then Assyria was never a cosmopolitan center again. Still, some major cities did live on as centers of Persian rule in Assyria. Instead, Assyrian wealth and importance shifted to agriculture. No matter what wars were waged and where political power shifted, Assyria was still in that fertile crescent between the Tigris and Euphrates. 
they grew huge quantities of grain and barley, as well as grapes, pears, apples, and other fruits. They raised various forms of livestock ranging from horses and donkeys to cattle and sheep or geese and chickens. Even though the population was now dispersed into large villages rather than grand cities, it was still a major population center in the empire. Assyrian levies made up a large core of almost every Persian army. But the real legacy of Assyria during this period is in Persia and the capital cities. Though Assyrian cities and palaces themselves were allowed to fall into ruin, much of the artwork was still visible, and many smaller cities lived on. The Persians even constructed a military garrison or trade outpost in the ruins of Kalhu. They had direct access to the Assyrian crafts. Persian artwork and architecture, trying to establish itself as a new world empire under the Tasbids and Darius, leaned more on the Assyrians than any other culture. Animal motifs, mythical creatures, and architectural tactics were all copied directly. Even the famous Faravahar symbol, that figure of a king seated in a winged disc, mimics the traditional images of the chief Assyrian god Asher. Now, we can move on to the second province in part three. Don't worry, only four more to go. I'm sure we'll finish in no time. Crossing the Tigris River and heading east, we enter Babylonia, called Babarush in Old Persian. The northmost third of the province, at least as represented on our map, was centered on Arbella. We don't really know much about the city in terms of politics or culture at this point. It was very ancient, with roots stretching all the way back to the Sumerians around 3000 BCE. Today, it is part of Erbil in modern Iraqi Kurdistan. Once again, we are faced with all of the problems of a city with 5,000 years of continuous habitation. The ancient evidence is all mixed together and indistinct. If you are following along on the big version of Ian Mladyov's map, you can see in the notes that this may have been the region known as Sagartia in the Behistun inscription. The Behistun inscription places the Sagartians, an Iranian tribe, near Arbella, but as I discussed in episode 26, part 1 of this tour, Herodotus placed them in Karmana, the far side of Parsa from Arbella. That location would make a little more sense for an Iranian group, but under the Persians and Medes, there would have been plenty of opportunity for some Sagartians to settle in both regions. South of Arbella slash Sagartia was a region known in later Hellenistic sources as Sitakene, named for the Greek translation of a Persian city known as Satagu. Interestingly, these names bear a striking resemblance to another Greek name for a Persian location, Satagadia in the Indus Valley, which I discussed in part 1. At least one modern city suggests that this city was actually founded for Satagadian exiles deported to Babylonia by Darius or some later king. But very little evidence exists to support that one way or the other, because we don't actually know where that city was. More famous cities in this section of Babylonia were Opus and Akkad. Both, more obviously for the latter, trace their histories back to the ancient Akkadians who founded the first historical empire. Based on the Greek and Babylonian accounts of Cyrus the Great's conquests, these two cities may have overlapped somewhat by the Persian period. Both are known to be in the same area on the Tigris River, and both were reportedly the site of a massacre carried out by Cyrus's troops according to different sources. Of course, the real reason to talk about Babylonia is in the southern third of the province. Naturally, this is the city of Babylon itself. For nearly 1500 years, it was the capital city of a kingdom that ruled southern Mesopotamia, disrupted only by occasional Assyrian direct rule. For most of its last century of independence, 
they ruled all of the land I've covered in this episode. Even when that all came to an end and Cyrus the Great entered the city back in episodes 7 and 8, Babylon remained the most important city in Mesopotamia. They were the seat of what might have been the greatest satrapy in the empire. Under the Taspids and Darius, they controlled Assyria and Babylonia together. They were living through a period of flourishing agricultural activity, with the Persian kings sponsoring vast canal-building projects to irrigate fields on either side of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers all throughout the region. The Babylonians were the primary artery of trade between the Persian east and western halves of the empire. The mountains of northern Iran and the presence of the royal capitals in Parsa forced eastern trade to swing south and up through Mesopotamia, with Babylon as the midpoint. On top of that, the ancient cities like Ur that had once sat on the coast of the Persian Gulf have been pushed away from the sea and fallen into decline as silt built up in the mouth of the river. Thus, even more trade was pushed north to Babylon. All of that led to Babylon becoming phenomenally wealthy, comfortably furnishing 1,000 talents of silver, roughly 34 tons of precious metal each year. Consequently, Babylon and southern Babylonia were home to businesses, extended families working almost like a corporation, that kept extensive records dealing with their transactions, supplies, and partners. Two primary archives we have from these families are the Agibi, from the time of Xerxes I, and the Marashu, more in line with our current narrative under Darius. These were some of the wealthiest Babylonian families of their day, and like most wealthy people in the ancient world, their business was land. They both owned and managed huge tracts of agricultural land. The Marashu, in particular, seemed to have been something like ancient property managers. They organized the affairs of the nobility and their massive estates in southern Mesopotamia. Early on, there was some continuity, and the nobles who hired families like the Marashu were mostly Babylonians under Cyrus and Cambyses, with only a few Persian or Median nobles receiving land there. After two successive revolts against Darius, things started shifting. Long-standing Babylonian noble families lost prominence, and more and more of Mesopotamia was given over to the Iranian nobles from Persia and Media. The Persians also gave smaller plots of Mesopotamian farmland to veteran soldiers as payment for their service, bringing more and more Persians and other Iranians into the region with each successive war, rebellion, and conquest. The process continued under Xerxes and began to influence the very vocabulary of the region. The Agibi and Marashu archives are mostly written in Akkadian cuneiform, but many of the words they used were clearly borrowings from Old Persian to describe things on the estates of the Iranian nobility. Meanwhile, Persian nobles and businessmen became increasingly embroiled in Babylonian transactions as bankers, landholders, and merchants. Even Cambyses, when he was still the crown prince ruling only Babylonia, had his steward paying out loans and collecting interest from Babylonian clients. And Akkadian vocabulary likewise seeped into the business and governing terminology of Old Persian. The process was not limited to wealth, land, and language. Persian and Babylonian culture became infused with one another rapidly. Under the Persians, Babylon had one of the most developed legal systems in the world, and the Babylonian judicial system became the basis for legal proceedings all over the empire. Simultaneously, from Cyrus onward, the actual judges of Babylon were appointed directly by the great king. Up to this point, the great kings also showered Babylon itself with favoritism not seen outside the western Iranian provinces. 
Cyrus proudly claimed the traditional titles of the King of Babylon when he entered the city and took over, and Cambyses served as King of Babylon under his father's auspices for a year after the city was conquered. Both of them fulfilled the religious duties of the Babylonian king in service to the god Marduk at the Akitu New Year's Festival each year, and continued providing state funds to Babylonian temples just like their native predecessors. Likewise, both spent part of the year holding court in Babylon, living in the palace constructed by Nebuchadnezzar II. After reconquering the city twice, Darius's disposition was not so kind. He cut the temple budgets, and raised the Babylonian tax burden to its famous 1,000 talents. That said, he continued to use the title King of Babylon alongside King of Persia, carry out his role in the Akitu festival, and provide some funding to the temples. Not only did he hold court in Babylon, but he started constructing a brand new palace, one that actually required rerouting the Euphrates River further from the city to make room for the new construction. The new palace might have been an attempt to distance himself from the Babylonian kings of the past, but also may just have been because he really liked that new palace smell. As we'll see in future episodes, the palace in Babylon was only one of three new palaces constructed just for Darius I. To check out those new palaces, we'll have to continue the tour. Now, looking at how long this episode is already, with just Assyria and Babylonia out of the way, and the theoretical most important provinces still ahead of us, the logical thing to do would be to stop, say, see you in two weeks, and roll credits. But I'm not going to do that, because I'm ready to be done with this tour already. So instead, I'm breaking the episode in two, and using this as our intermission. The next episode should already be in your podcast feed as episode 29, The Grand Tour, Part 4. So, with that, I'll just say see you in media. If this is the episode that spurs you to tell your friends on social media, support the show on Patreon, or leave a review, go ahead and do that before you move on. If you just can't wait, thank you for listening to the History of Persia. I'll see you again soon. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.